we're looking at, at, at a man in the Bible to illustrate for us uh, what it looks like for a believer to make a transition between uh, having a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus, and then um, not being in fellowship to moving into relationship and fellowship. We've seen the example, and I know we've gone over it at length, and, and, uh, but there is so much confusion in uh, Christendom uh, about the difference between relationship and fellowship and what does all that mean that um, we would do well to, uh, to, to look at what the Bible has to say about that and illuminate our hearts about it so that the confusion, the unnecessary confusion can go away. There's so many people who are spiritually stuck in the Christian life because of that very reason. And so we looked at a, a, an example of a believer already in relationship and fellowship, that is Abraham. And we looked at an example of a believer who was in relationship but out of fellowship, and that would be Lot. <clears throat> now, we're looking at a, a believer who's in relationship and he's moving into fellowship. And there was a scheduled event in his life, not scheduled by this man, but scheduled by the God who rescued him and us if we're saved. And that, of course, is the wrestling match that took place between God and uh, and Jacob in Genesis chapter 32. And we were looking at that verse by verse the last couple of weeks, and we're going to continue in that, God willing, this morning. We'll go over some ground we've already been through just by way of background and then move on in the text. The thing, what, what does it mean to move and make a transition from relationship to fellowship? I just have to say this up front or express this up front. I'm convinced. Convinced. And I believe the Bible certainly backs this up. That there are plenty enough people inside the professing church who um, who uh, believe they're headed for heaven who are not. And the, the bottom line is, is the Christian life uh, and the power that is available to us in the relationship cannot be realized, experienced, secured, uh, or lived in absent the relationship. Uh, and and uh, we would we would do well to uh, conduct a self-examination to see if there really is one. I'm convinced that a lot of the turmoil that happens in churches and the things that mar our testimony uh, within and without it is because of the number of people uh, inside the professing church who are not a part of the real church. The number of people who are in church but are not in Christ. And... Um, and, and I know that God's going to parse that out. God's, going to, God's got that figured out. He knows who is with Him and He knows who's not. The wheat and the tares are going to be separated. But just wonder if it wouldn't do well for us to step back. We have a weekly opportunity to do it through the Lord's Supper. Is there a relationship there? If there is, am I walking in its power? Am I enjoying the fellowship that should be mine? Do we even have an appetite for the fellowship? That's a good question too, isn't it? Is there even an appetite to obey God? Is there a set of is there is there habitual apathy in my life so much so that my profession of Christian faith maybe not be may not be on good solid biblical footing? You ask people all the time, and you come in contact with people all the time, they will tell you that they believe they're going to go to heaven, and then when you probe and ask them the reasons for holding that belief, oftentimes you'll find out that there's no good biblical reason for them having that hope. It's a wonderful opportunity to share with them what the real hope and the basis of real hope is. 
but it's amazing inside church circles how many folks, tragically enough, believe they're headed for heaven and have no real biblical reason for, for, for having that hope. So it would be a great time to examine. It's a great time to us to talk about the examination and a great time, and that's one of the graces of having communion. So we look at now uh, this, this, uh, this believer, Jacob, and he's moving from relationship to fellowship in this wrestling match. And we're going to read from Genesis chapter 32, verse 22. We'll go back up a little bit from where we left off last week just to get the whole context. You'll recall he's facing his greatest fear uh, ahead of him in the very near future. The immediate future, rather, is Esau, an encounter with Esau, his brother. Twenty years had passed. His last encounter with Esau was that Esau committed that he was going to only wait and put off killing Jacob until their father had died. He didn't want to bring upon distress to his father. So he said, after dad dies, the moment we bury him, I'm going to kill you. And you know that the reason why is because he had swindled him out of the blessing and his birthright. That was the habit of Jacob. You remember his name means heel catcher, a deceiver, a swindler, a manipulator, extraordinaire. But now here he comes to this place in his life and he's got no plan up his scheme, up his sleeve. His schemes have run out and he's at a point of desperation. He's destitute. He's exactly where God wanted him. And at that point of desperation and destitute and distress, he calls on the Lord. At our point of desperation and distress, we're to call on the Lord. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we called on Him before it got to that? So he's 20 years in relationship but out of fellowship. He's outside of Bethel, the place where God had met him in Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. Bethel means house of God. He met God. God made him some promises. He was still clinging to those promises. But he was still a manipulator nonetheless. And the manipulator got manipulated by Laban, his father-in-law, over the course of 20 years because you reap what you sow. Now he comes to the place where he's about to face Esau and he knows he's in trouble. He's got a figure that Esau, who was a man's man, who was no sissy, was going to... Uh, possibly kill him and his entire family. So he comes to this wrestling match that God set up in Genesis chapter 32, verse 22. Let's read from there. And he, Jacob, arose that night and took his two wives, his female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and set over what he had. Sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, Jacob, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Therefore to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank. 
which is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of the hip in the muscle that shrank. Let's pray. That's the word of the living God. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you'll take it and crack up in our hearts and put it down deep. I pray, God, that we'll be established beneath so that there'll be fruit above. And Father, that's a promise. That's a gracious promise from your word. It's a guarantee that if we'll submit, we'll be open, humble, and broken before you. That the place of our emptying will be the place that we get to see you. May that be the testimony of all of us here. May we be willing to let to, to, to let to ask the hard questions motivated by and prompted by you. And then be humble enough and wise enough to hear your answer. Let's don't live unexamined lives. But God, give us this opportunity and help us to seize it. You have given it to us. Help us to seize it for your honor and your glory. In the sweet name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Just some things, some things that we noticed and observed as we look back on this. Do you remember what Jabot means? Emptying. means emptying. So the place where Jacob was emptied is where exactly where God wanted him, wanted him to be. He sent his children and everything that was important to him and all his family and his wives over ahead of him and he was left alone in verse 24. And we made the observation that he was there alone because when you're wrestling with God and you're moving into the place of fellowship, it's a lonely place. We know in Christianity that God does not have grandchildren. He only has children. I can pass down to my, my children a sin nature, but I cannot pass down to them Christian faith. I can declare Christian faith and hopefully live it, but it's still supernatural work for God to save anybody. It's still a supernatural work for God to save anybody. But he was left alone there, and the wrestling match ensued. And it says a man, and in your Bible... The word man is capitalized. And what do we observe about that? Who is that? It's God Himself. Jesus Christ is the pre-incarnate Jesus. That's who this is. Wrestled with Jacob until the breaking of day. Man wrestled with Him. I mean, the man wrestled with Jacob and not the other way around. This is one something that Jacob scheduled. This is something God scheduled. It took His place at God's timing and God's way and God opened up and set this up at the appropriate time. When Jacob was ready and when the situation was right, God knows exactly what to do. And so therefore the wrestling match was, was organized and set up by God. Just like the wrestling match between our flesh and the Holy Spirit, God sets up for us. It says when he saw that he did not prevail against him, you'll see that the, the pronouns there are, uh, are capitalized as well probably in your Bible. Because it is that God saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. In other words, the flesh had a strong grip on him. It has a strong, uh, oftentimes, grip on you and us. After all, he'd been living out of it for the past 20 years or so. And the, the victory is ready to come. This is a guy who had schemed all his life and he, made, he had a habit of scheming. And this is what the devil would tell us about the pattern of our life. That we're entrenched in it and there's nothing that we can do about it. He even tells Christians and Christians even buy into that. Well, that's the way it's always been. That's always been your bent. That's always been the pattern. That's always been the struggle. And it always will be. You're captive to this and there will be no freedom. You've got heaven to look forward to, but no victory down here. The only problem, that's the Bible. God said, no, there's victory here. 
you're not entrenched in this. This is not who you are. You do not have to live this way. You remember we observed that the best rendering of the Scriptures when Jesus said in the Gospels, you shall know the truth and the truth shall not set you free. The best rendering of that is, is the truth will make you free. If you're set free, you could be entrapped again. But if you're made free, it means you have a new identity. You're somebody new. You are no longer who you used to be. We've been redeemed. We're new creatures in Christ. See, all that scheming, that conniving, it was coming back to haunt him here. But yet, the, the, he, he, the flesh was still prevailing. There was still a wrestling match going on. And so the, the flesh was asserting its power and he was so entrenched that God supernaturally wounded him by touching the hip of his socket. He didn't kill him, but he did wound him. He wounded him in a way that he would nurse that wound and hold that wound and walk with a different walk for the rest of his life to memorialize it. That's the way God works. We've talked about this before time and again that God is more interested in changing us than He is in changing our circumstances. That God uses this and uses the things around us to deal with the enemy that's within. And when He set this wrestling match up and it's on, God hurt Him enough to mortally wound that flesh. It's a reflection of what would one day happen at Calvary when God would mortally wound His Son. It's a preview of coming attractions that freedom comes and life comes from death. We talked about this before, but there is a kind of living that leads to dying and there is a kind of dying that leads to living. This is the work of the cross in Jacob because he had already experienced the work of the cross for him. You and I as believers have already experienced the work of the cross for us. But God's design post-deliverance in that work is to experience the work of the cross in us. And oh my, how we resist that tooth and nail. We will change circumstances. We will manipulate. We're every bit the manipulator that Jacob is. We'll manipulate people. We'll throw relationships under the bus. We'll do whatever we have to do to manipulate, connive, and scheme out of getting out of this wrestling match. But God scheduled it nonetheless. And he had schemed and is scheming no more. Thank God He loves us just like we are, but He loves us too much to let us stay like we are. So He was left alone, and we talked about this last week, that that wound hurt. It was painful. The Christian life, when aiming toward victory, is painful. It comes with its own set of difficulties. It comes with it its own set of pain and persecution. It is not some fluffy, superficial existence in hopes that we'll float on the cloud with a heart one day, with wings uh, issued from heaven. It is a difficult life. We'll look at it in the Scriptures in a minute to highlight that. So that wound hurt. People hurt. There are wounds in the Christian life. There are circumstances that wound us. I've told of the testimony of a friend of mine who had a pastor friend in Douglasville. And there was a many, many, many tumultuous events going on in his church. And he was 
severely pained and wounded by them. And he got in his office one day and said, God, these, these people have wounded me. And the Lord spoke back to him and he said, I intended for them to kill you. I don't want them just to wound you. I want them to finish you off. Because once they finish you off, then I take up. And I'm going to do with your life what I can do with it. Because I don't, mean, I don't need you and I cooperating with one another. Thanks but no thanks. I don't need your help. This is what was happening to Jacob. The wound hurt, but the, 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 the grace was imposed by God and that's it. That, that is this. That he persevered while wounded. This is another exit ramp. This is another potential to get off and say that before God gets His work done and finishes the wrestling match, there are all these exit ramps that we see. And boy, they're raised up by the enemy to woo us off, off the trail, to get off the interstate and take a, a respite. I'm done with this. I'm done with this situation. I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I've endured, I've endured and put up with it enough. I'm done. It happened in the Gospels to Jesus. He had plenty of people who were following Him in John chapter 6. And the Bible says when He spoke of the... Uh, he said, you're going to have to eat of My flesh and you have to drink of My blood. They started taking that spiritual truth and trying to make it a physical reality. And they misinterpreted everything He was saying. And they said to Him, your sayings are too hard for us. This is where we stop. And He turned around to the twelve and He said, you guys want to go too? And one of them spoke up. Peter, the, the, uh, often the spokesman for the group, and He said, where else are we going to go? We believe that you're God incarnate and you have the words of life. And he turns to the Christian all the time and he says, is this where you're going to get off? He doesn't make you stay. He turns and asks an honest question. He said, there's an off-ramp right here and there's your opportunity. doesn't mean necessarily that you're not saved. It could. doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means that you've settled into a type of Christianity you're satisfied with. And you've had enough of God and God's given you enough of Him and you're just going to kind of settle for that. It's the most miserable way to live that you could possibly imagine. And it's a life of fruitlessness. So all these exit ramps come up. But he persevered in the pain and he said, I'm not going to let you go until, until you bless me. He was clinging to promises that he knew God had made to him that basically said this, you're going to live through this encounter with Esau. You're going to go back to the land of your fathers and I'm going to abundantly bless you there. Implication, Esau must be, it must be that he's not going to kill you. These promises cannot be realized if Esau kills you. I've made these promises to you. And so he latches on to what God has said and says, wait just a minute. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. He had a promise from God. You as a believer have a promise from God. I'll tell you one of them. He who began a good work and that's is going to complete it the day of his son. I'm grateful for that one. So I'll not let you go until you bless me. And he said, what is your name? And we observed last week and we're catching up. This is all reviewed. We're catching up for where we were last week. He said, what is your name? You remember? The Garden of Eden and heart back in there. What happens to Adam? He sins. Messes up everything. God shows up on the scene and He asks him a question. And we've talked about this time and again. What did He say to him? Where are you? And Adam speaks in the Scriptures. First recorded words that God, man ever recorded in Scripture. First words that man ever said to God. I heard you in the garden and we were afraid and so we hid. 
we observe the fact that God, the omniscient God of the world, did not ask him where he was for God's benefit. It wasn't like God was scratching his head. Reckon where Adam is. Where has he gone off to? He asked that question for Adam's benefit. Adam had to recognize where he was before he could ever get to where God wanted him to be. And so, the same question happens here. When Jesus Christ Himself asked Jacob, Jacob, what is your name? He wasn't asking, who is this I've been wrestling with? After all, it's night. I don't know who this is. No. God set up the wrestling match. He had a billboard in heaven and says, come see this one. You know, God versus Jacob. And that was all set up at the right time. And so he knew exactly who he was wrestling with. He was pulling out of Jacob a confession that Jacob needed to make. And we made the observation last week. It is not that God works through weakness. It is that God works through recognized weakness. He pulled out of him the fact that you're a schemer. Admit it, son. Admit where you are. Admit who you've been. Admit how you have tried to help me out. Admit how you've schemed and swindled and connived to get everything that you've gotten up until this point. And by the way, the big things that you got through your scheming was things I promised to give you anyway. He said, I want you to be brought to a place where you really do trust me. You claim trust, but you really don't trust me. There's some of you going through seasons of life right now where you're learning to trust God like you've never learned before. You're learning to say, you know what, Lord, I thought I knew what it meant to trust you, but now I'm, I'm pressing into a point where I'm really getting to find out what it means to trust you. And you said, what is your name? Recognize your weakness. It's been said before, and Oswald Chambers said it, that an unguarded strength is a double weakness. And then when you admit your weaknesses, then you realize that's where God is made strong. And so he pulled that out of him and he said, okay, in verse 28, now we're catching up. Your name should no longer be called Jacob. It's going to be called Israel because you've struggled with God and with men and you have prevailed. Isn't that amazing? It said, Jacob, you won. How could you wrestle with God? You come out on top. Or me. The issue is this. God won and credited Jacob with the victory. That's the way the Christian life works. He won. He did the work on our behalf and then turns around and does this wonderful thing. This word that's been used here this morning already. He imputes us with the victory. God secures the victory. God wins the victory. It's all His work, none of ours, and then turns around and credits us with the victory. That's why He said, you prevailed. No, God prevailed and credited Him with the victory. It's the same thing He's done for you. Now this is where we've been trying to get to for weeks, believe it or not. And I've struggled with how do we get here? What do we get here? How do we, how do we get here? How's it illustrated in the Bible? Here's the issue. Do you recall when we started going through all of this and we talked about the characters, character, characteristics of a believer who's in relationship and fellowship and we talked about what a Christian life would look like in the midst of persecution because we're about to go through it? Do you understand that we're on the edge of going through persecution for our Christian faith in this culture? And what does a believer who's in fellowship and relationship, what does his life look like in anticipation of it? And we had seven... Bs, B-E, be focused, be sober, be holy, be content, be watchful, be prayerful, be loving. Remember that? The issue is this. 
be is, is the verb. Be this. Take this action. Take this action. And the truth and the reality is, is that you can be loving because you are loving. The truth of the reality is that you can be prayerful because you are prayerful. The truth is you can be watchful because you are watchful. The truth is I can be content because I am content. The truth is I can be holy because I am holy. The truth is I can walk soberly because I am sober. And the truth is that I can be focused because I am focused. The way to press in and experience the verb is to own the identity. This is who we are. He said, you're no longer that. You're not a schemer. In my eyes, you are Israel. What he's saying is that in my eyes, because I have credited you with a victory that I secured, in my eyes, you are not a schemer. In my eyes, you're rightly related to me through my son. In my eyes, you're holy. In my eyes, you're above reproach. In my eyes, you're justified. In my eyes, you are not guilty. In my eyes, you're innocent of everything that you've ever done. Not because you didn't do it, because I took out the penalty for having done it on my son and I have made you free. That's the transition. I can act loving because I am loving. If the devil says no, you've got to wait until you feel a certain way. You've got to, there's a probationary period that you've got to go through where you just become this ooey-gooey loving person. Or there's a probationary period in the Christian life where you become focused one day. Or there's a probationary period at one time where after a certain period of time, God will start quit tolerating you and He'll really let you in. He'll give you a new name. No, that happened when you got saved. There's no probationary period. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And he's saying, listen, Jacob, the reason that you can walk in the rule of God is because my son did. And everything that he did, I now say that's who you are. You can be Everything that He is. You don't replace Him. You are in Him though. You can be holy because you are holy. The way to realize that grace of living is to first receive that which already has been done. And the devil, that's his line of attack against the believer. You're different. You are different. You're a hybrid Christian. You're a hybrid. You've got an engine that's electric and you've got this gas thing working too. And you've got this inner turmoil that nobody else has. You're unique. And you have struggles that are all your own and nobody else knows about them. And you're entrenched and you're bound and destined and consigned to live in them for the rest of your life. The only problem with that is the Bible. That is not true. He said, you are no longer Jacob. You are Israel. And Israel means God rules. You don't have to live like this anymore, son. You have been this way all along. And I'm getting you to the point, not because it's now true. It's been true of you, son. This has been true of you. Positionally speaking, you and I as Christians are as right 
with God as Jesus Christ is. Don't throw anything at me for saying that or send a nasty email. If you want to cut the tires on the truck, it's green. Doesn't mean you are Jesus and doesn't mean I am Jesus. But upon repentance toward God and faith in His Son, I have been credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And see, that doesn't build up the body of Christ. That builds up the Christ of the body. That builds up Him. That's bragging on Him. How could God take a motley crew like us and turn around and say that about us? How could it be that I would dare hope and dare say that I am going to stand in front of God one day in perfect, righteous judgment and He's going to put the gavel down and you know what the, you know what the verdict's going to be? Holy, blameless, and above reproach. Oh, that oil right there is called disbelief. And it is profane to God as sodomy is. Disbelief is just as nasty as lying. Disbelief is just as nasty as murder. As a matter of fact, all those other sins are rooted in disbelief. We're holding back. We're holding court. We've put God on trial. God, the promises can't be that good. Did you know what Catherine said to me the other day? She said, this is a great comment. She said, Daddy, how do you deal with it when somebody says to you after you share the gospel with them that that just sounds too good to be true? I said, well, first take a step back and rejoice that maybe you handled it accurately because it does sound like it's too good to be true. Own up to it and say, I know it sounds that way, but it's the truth. God did the work and He'll let you in through repentance and faith in His Son plus nothing. Amen? So these bees, these verbs, here, be holy, be focused. I'm not trying to use the Bible to saddle you with a burden. We're trying to use the Bible to assert our freedom. We can be those things because we are those things. You say, oh, I can't love that person. Why not? You're a loving person. I can't forgive. Yes, you can because you're a forgiving person. I can't live holy like that. Yes, you can because you are holy. No, I'm on probation. You are? You are? You're on probation? Where does that say that in the Bible? Is it not a day trial where God looks to see if it's going to work out and whether or not I'm going to commit to Him and you're going to commit, you know, whether or not let's keep the jury out? No. I remember one time when I took, took my son Paul and took him in the pulpit and pulled him up beside me. And I said, This is my son Paul. Paul, as far as we know, has two lungs. As far as we know, he's got two kidneys. As far as we know, he's got a liver. As far as we know, he's got all the parts that I have. And he was an infant at that time, an infant. I said, but i tell you what we're not going to do. I, I, I don't think. We're not going to go out to dinner to Longhorn Steaks and give him a uh, ribeye. Because it would kill him. We're going to give him that much up disgusting stuff that only a baby could love. And, they'll, and then that's going to develop his digestive system and one day he'll be able to handle the other stuff that his dad eats. But you know what's true about me and what's true about Paul? Every bit of the body parts that I have, he has. And, and mine are just more mature than his are. And that's the way it is when you're born again. The moment you're born again, you get everything you'll ever get. And you, and you have all of him. The question is, how much of you 
does he have? And that was the question that was held out and answered here. I would love to say, it would be cute, it would be great, and it would be fitting, it would be nice to say that throughout the rest of the Scriptures when Jacob was referred to, that he was primarily referred to as Israel, but that's not true. Throughout the rest of the Scripture, twice as often as he was ever referred to as Israel, he was referred to as Jacob. But you know what? The bottom line is, he's still Israel. Simon Peter. <laughs> Simon, flesh, Peter in the Spirit. You know, we talked about this battle. It's in Romans chapter 7. That's our wrestling match. And Paul comes out of it and says, who's going to rescue me from this, this tyranny? Who's going to rescue me from this divine wrestling match that I cannot seem to get victory from? And what does he come out of it saying? Praise God, Jesus Christ. Rescue me. Oh, dear ones, is it high time that we in the body of Christ own up to, meditate on, and receive that which is already true? He posed a good question in that song, that song. And you could say it in different ways. But why, why, why are we waging a battle that's already been won? It's already been won. So, you can be as loving as Jesus. Why? Because you are. You can, you can walk in the holiness of Jesus because you are. You can be focused and have a heavenly mindset because you are already. That's true of you now. There are no probationary periods in the Christian life. God has committed Himself to you through His Son and He keeps that commitment. It's eternal. And it's the reason we can know that no probationary periods is because the covenant is between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and has nothing to do with what we do or what we don't do. Most covenants involve two parties. Marriage is a covenant. And we make a covenant relationship. Most people treat it like a contract. I do the following, you do the following. If you don't do your part, then I'll sue you. That's what a divorce is, is a lawsuit. And But no, we have a covenant cut by the blood of Christ. And that covenant is unconditional. And God cut the covenant and God performed the work in order to superintend it. And so therefore, it is not contingent upon what I do or don't do. It is contingent upon what, it's no longer contingent, but it was contingent upon what God did, and God did it. Amen? He says, you prevailed. God said, I've won the victory and I gave you credit for it. He said, tell me your name, I pray. And God says, you don't even know my name. You don't even know my name. You don't, there's no sense of that. You know better than that. Don't go back to that. You know exactly who, who's been dealing with you. You know who I am. I know whom I have believed and persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed unto Him against that day. God doesn't mince words. He said, no, you know exactly. No need to ask that. My name and your name are the same now. They always have been since I met you at Bethel. He changed the name of the place to Peniel. Isn't that the coolest thing? His emptying, his place of emptying is where he got full. That'll be the case for you too. Here's what. Here's what you and I need to understand. One thing that we need to understand. Jacob, incorrectly, but understandably, reasoned that his greatest enemy was outside of him. And he went to the wrestling match only to find out that his greatest enemy was inside of him. 
God used the perceived enemy, Esau, outside to expose what he was in bondage to on the inside. Whatever you think your enemy is or whoever you think your enemy is, it'd be good to look at them that way or look at the circumstance that way. That is nothing but God using that enemy to expose what he wants to do on the inside. And Jacob got free that day. His greatest enemy was himself. His greatest enemy was his self-reliance. His greatest enemy was his distrustful nature. His, because his scheming nature was motivated by a nature of distrust. And that was exposed at Peniel. Your Jabbok can become your Peniel. You can try to skip it and go down the banks a little while and try to rename that spot. But no, no, no. It's the same spot. Jabbok turns to Peniel. Same spot. The same plot of ground where he thought he was going to be ruined was the same plot of ground where he was eternally changed. This is our inheritance. This is what can be true for us. You know why? Because we as Christians, there is, there is a place for a believer to enter the Sabbath rest of God whereby we are stripped of trusting ourselves and we're left with nothing but just to trust Him. God's interested in you being at that place. Don't squirm out of it. If you've schemed and squirmed before in the past, don't squirm out of this one. Let God do His work. And your jabbit will become your penile. And the enemies that you have come to resent over time, you'll have a different perspective about them. And you'll realize everything that was marshaled against me was just to expose that which was in me. So that I could be brought to find out who Jesus Christ really is. You can live holy and be holy because you are holy. You can, anything in the Bible that says God wants us to live out the Christian faith, we can do it because that's who we are.